Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Lundown, a podcast analyzing breaking news in architecture, housing, and planning produced by Open City, which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible, and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to The Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City friend too, including access to an exclusive program of year-round in-person events. Also, by donating, you're supporting independent journalism, keeping the London free and accessible for others, and directly helping Open City's wider educational work, particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities. To sign up as an Open City friend and get early ad-free access to the London, click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk slash friends. Thank you. On with the show. Paris bans rental e-scooters. A new Superloop bus network for suburban London. A memorial to the victims of the transatlantic slave trade. And a reprieve for Richard Rogers' iconic Channel 4 headquarters. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau and Design District is Neil Chassaw. Neil is an author, historian and head of the London School of Architecture. Welcome to the show. Hi Merlin. A memorial commemorating the victims of the transatlantic slave trade is set to be erected in West India Quay in the London Docklands, close to the former site of Robert Milligan's statue. He was a prominent 18th century slave trader, and his statue was taken down by the local council tower hamlets in 2020. The Guardian, which this month documented its own historic links to the slave trade, reported that this will be the first such monument of its scale in Britain. City Hall has put aside half a million pounds to the project and says this may be expanded ahead of the project deadline of 2026. An artist is due to be chosen by competition following a community consultation to create an artistic brief. Deputy Mayor for Communities and Social Justice Debbie Weeks-Bernard said the intention was to give Londoners a, quote, dedicated space where they can reflect, where they can memorialise and remember the impact of the transatlantic slave trade had on the enslaved and their descendants. So, Neil, this memorial forms part of the London Mayor's Commission on Diversity in the Public Realm, which Sadiq Khan set up in the wake of Black Lives Matter and the anti-racism protests in 2020. What's this commission achieved so far, and do you think it's been successful? Yeah, I think it's good to see some prominent output from that commission, which I thought was an interesting move. Um, Respect a number of people on it who who've done you know very deep thinking about these issues people like rob bevan whose monumental lies is kind of trying to tackle not his monumental lies his book monumental lies uh is kind of trying to um <clears throat> think about these questions with with nuance and i think real sophistication that being said i do wonder whether this tactic of 
renaming and of of simply diversifying the kind of um representation of people events uh through public memorials is getting to the root of the question do i think that we should make the legacies of the transatlantic slave trade of structural racism and of the complex histories of migration legible in our built environment 100% completely committed to that do i think there are really interesting challenging critical ways of doing that yes and possibly more so than the the design um by an artist however much community consultation there might be whatever that means uh, you know i'm not sure that i'm not sure that that's the most effective way of 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 doing that um that's a reflection i've had for a long time certainly since the roads must fall protests uh in oxford having having come from from uct in south africa what is the process that these memorials come along how do they come to be because we're discussing the relevance of this commission but there's been loads of other commissions that have come up with all these other memorials and not done this one up until now and what's more this is going to go where the robert milligan statue was how on earth did that statue get there in the first place if you look it was on a plinth that lines up directly with the door to the london docklands uh, museum part of the museum of london right inside that museum is uh, an exhibition on the transatlantic slave trade which is harrowing which everyone should go and see and yet at some point somebody decided to put a statue of robert milligan right in front of the museum but that no one's talking about that which yeah. is surely quite an interesting thing we need to unpack how all that happened first that's right and then and then think about the placing of a new statue there because it's got to do the undo the damage that landed that allowed that thing to happen in the first place i think that's spot on i mean i you know the histories of memorialization and of, of monuments are long and complex i'm particularly interested in the kind of emergence of of a particular type of memorialization in the 19th century and into the 20th century which i think we're often dealing with they tend to become the flashpoints because they're born of i guess a particular kind of um attitude to great men and to heroic national narratives so i'm i'm quite interested in how the american progressive movement begat the ideal of the city beautiful uh, which involve the kind of peppering of the urban landscape with street furniture and statues which were trying to set up deliberately kinds of narratives with all the kind of um, contradictions i suppose of of american progressivism uh, at that particular time in the in the in the last quarter of the 19th century and how those ideas get quite literally translated transatlantically the city beautiful movement uh, becomes associated with a kind of liberal progressivism uh, uh, emanating um, not only from london but also from um, new liberal lancashire i've done a bit of thinking about this in relation to the early history of the civic center and so so i'm quite interested in the very deliberate strategies that were used to um as your as you're suggesting um mean that those statues are there in the first place and if we want to decolonize them to undo some of that work we do need to 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 do that better otherwise there is the danger that we're just sort of replacing a kind of like for like and avoiding doing the the really hard work that we that we need to 
In other words, if the if the system, the capitalist system, and the and and many of its institutions and our political system and so on were implicated in this in very very complex ways, that complexity needs to be like registered. Need to needs to be made visible, not just through monuments, but through other forms of mobilization, which might even include institutional reform. You know, so I think that's always been the danger of as I have understood the kind of setup of the Commission for Diversity in the Public Realm, which is that, you know, at its worst, and I'm not suggesting that it is this caricature, that it might just involve lots of renaming and statues of, of black and brown bodies. And I'm not saying that that won't mean anything to anybody, and I, I'm really not. But I do think that there might be, um, yeah, more complex, more nuanced ways of, of talking about these things. I can recommend to people to read in the um, Paul Mellon Centre's journal, British Art Studies, a conversation piece um, prefaced by an, an art historian called Edwin um, Kumarasaru uh, about monumentality, which he describes as an aesthetic form of social antagonism, monuments as cultural modes of social conflict, that's trying to, I think, open up a question. I think, I think the headline is Monuments Must Fall, which I think is a brilliant provocation. That's exactly the conversation that we should be having and that in a sense I hoped that the Commission on Diversity in the Public Realm would would stimulate. I'm not sure whether that is in the end what it's trying to trying to do. And imagine you're the one writing the brief for this competition. Okay, so we know this site. It's on West India Quay. It's outside the Museum of the London Docklands. Um, all around it is Canary Wharf. You've got towers a lot of them were American banks, but also there's this kind of naming of the streets with transatlantic references. So how do you do something there? What? How would you sort of throw down the baton to artists and creatives in this competition? I'm not sure that that particular form of memorialization has the kind of political potency in kind of making a new memorial that it once did. And I think it is actually much more powerful to contest those existing monuments and their and their and their legacies because they are a form of an aesthetic form of social antagonism and i think i mean not to try and dodge your question Merlin, but i think that was also what i felt with the with the with the roads controversy in particular that if you read um uh, the architect roads's favorite architect herbert baker's hagiography of roads uh, and the way in which he describes roads's understanding of of art of architecture of monuments of memorials roads knew exactly what he was doing and so to play those kinds of those games as it were with 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 roads is playing him at his own game and i think that can be very that can be extremely productive i'm not sure that's necessarily the case with with all of these sites so 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 in other words i don't think it would be a single memorial i think the city would have to become a a memorial as a whole to those legacies of enslavement uh, of indent of indentured labor of extractivism but that would mean a very different city that is the city by the way that i would like to live in uh, i just don't think there's an, an entire entire democratic consensus that that's all what we that we want to do Last week, London Mayor Sadiq Khan unveiled plans to introduce a new network of express buses to connect the city's suburbs. The Evening Standard reported that the project, called the Superloop, will combine existing services such as the X140, which links Heathrow to Harrow, with proposed new orbital routes providing speedier connections between key outer London hubs. It forms part of the £6 million investment into outer London bus services by the Mayor, designed to complement the expansion of the old 
ultra-low emission zone to the Greater London boundary. Khan said, quote, When I made the tough decision to expand the ULES London-wide, one of my key commitments to Londoners was to improve transport links in outer London. It's been pointed out, however, that only a few of the new services are expected to be in place by the time the ULES expansion comes into effect in late August this year. So, Neil, you grew up in an outer London suburb. What is the public transport provision like in these outer areas at the moment? And do you think this Superloop is the silver bullet that outer London needs? Uh, well, I haven't lived in the suburbs, I suppose, um, outer London suburbs for 15 years, though I remain, a, I guess, a proud suburbanite. Uh, our particular suburban condition where I grew up in, basically on the kind of boundary between Merton and Kingston yeah, it was sort of wedged between the hinterlands of Wimbledon and Kingston and Morden, which are which are relatively highly connected places. I don't know what their the PTAL score was. Yeah, I think there is a bus that goes from Tooting to Kingston, the number fifty-seven. Oh, and when I lived in Tooting, you love the fifty-seven, but you see how important the fifty-seven is. Yeah, yeah. Does it go to Croydon as well? Or uh, it certainly didn't at right. that time. It was Kingston to Streatham Hill. The thing, the thing I find quite interesting, I suppose, is. I guess my extended family, yeah. but for people like my late grandmother who was still using buses into her eighties to get to us from Wembley, mm. you know the kind of the super loop would would have been quite liberating. Yeah, um, reading this story sort of prompted all kinds of um, nostalgic reflection about travel in the in the suburbs and and in particular by by bus yeah. and, cer- and certainly a few trips with my cousin taking the, the most ridiculous um, bus routes to places that are ultimately not very far away. I really love listening to the way you describe that experience and that kind of territory because obviously the area you just... You, you 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 were living in you, you haven't mentioned the a3 once okay and that's like in my in my mind's eye southwest london suburbia is a kind of community of people connected by this mega motorway you know with all the houses next to it and kind of polluting thing and it's actually that was the way out that was the way but out. but there were ecosystems i suppose and places within the thing is is that it feels like the outer london experience from transport perspective, is more complex than the inner London one. And there's a richness to that. There's a beauty to that. But will the Superloop solve it? Because the Superloop is basically just an express route between different town centres. You don't actually spend that much time going between different major town centres. You probably spend more time going to all the kind of weird, beautiful, amazing things that occupy outer London. Mm. So if you're going to get people out of their cars in outer London, Mm. is the Superloop going to do it? Well, yeah, I don't know, but it is about connectivity. I don't know. I'd be interested to see some kind of analysis, for example, of the sort of geographies of of diaspora communities. That's sort of how I read this. I don't know why. I think it is partly because my grandmother used to take buses a lot until buses betrayed her, um, uh, which is a long story about Asari getting caught in bus wheels. But um, that's sort of how I read it. It's about getting being kind of connecting people between those places so if we could go from outer london to inner london people had to use buses a lot along came the overground um transport for london has announced that it's set aside four million pounds to rename what are now six london overground lines i didn't even know there were six um so what do you think uh what do you think about this neil um certainly if we look at social media everyone seems to think this is a change that is long overdue giving each of the six lines their own name seems to be very very popular um do you support the move um and if it was down to you what would you name these six london overground lines um 
I guess I spend a lot of time on the overground in East London and then traveling to South East London. Um, I don't mind the idea of naming them. I think we've kind of lost the art of naming Oh yeah, Battersea Power Station station. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and the the kind of clunkiness of the Elizabeth line line line. <laughs> um, uh, I think there's a there's a link to a bigger question about memorialization, which of course naming often certainly in the tube network does mm. Elizabeth line, Victoria line, and so on. Mm. Um, so I think again, there's a sort of there's a bigger point, isn't there, about our the nature of our infrastructure in in the naming. It's not just it could so easily be a kind of very gimmicky boaty boat face kind of thing, mm. but actually there could be something really interesting and quite profound about it um, um, and a way of understanding, as I say, kind of infrastructural decisions more in concert with the natural environment and to understand the deeper historical and cultural resonances of place, which would be nice. Parisians have voted overwhelmingly to outlaw rental e-scooters in their city following a referendum which saw almost 90% of votes favouring a ban on the controversial devices. However, as The Guardian and BBC reported, fewer than 8% of those eligible actually turned out to vote on Sunday. This comes in response to the rising number of scooter-related incidents and fatalities in the French capital since e-scooters, or trottinettes, were introduced in 2018 as part of the city's drive to promote non polluting forms of transport. Paris's socialist mayor Anne Hidalgo, who's a fierce advocate for 15-minute cities and has worked to promote cycling and bike sharing, supported the ban, saying, quote, self-service scooters are the source of tension and worry for Parisians and that a ban would reduce nuisance in public spaces. So, Neil, what's your take on e-scooters? Are they a dangerous nuisance, as some claim, or an important step towards greener public transport and much safer option than polluting cars? I find them terrifying. But that's mainly because I am a complete um, wimp and physically risk-averse. So you don't have one? I don't, <laughs> I don't have one. What do you think of that decision of the Mayor of Paris to basically, when confronted with a kind of thorny issue, a big debate like this, to settle it with a referendum? Because like, that's kind of interesting approach to this. You know, it'd be pretty bizarre if the Mayor of London did a referendum on line bike parking for something. I mean, is it is the referendum clever or is this just a kind of way to dodge responsibility for an issue which realistically the public sector should have seen coming and should have come up with some kind of sensible solution to make this work in Paris rather than just say, oh, this is too much of a headache, let's just have a referendum and try and ban it. There's a dodge, isn't there, in the in 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 the referendum question, as you're suggesting, because it avoids asking the bigger question about how people want to get about in the city and to do so in a in an affordable and sustainable way. And instead, it locates it it isolates one form of one method of transport. And yeah. kind of bans it quite crudely. Yeah. But again, I suppose my question would be, you know, what if there had been a municipal e-scooter hire system yeah. that had built in right to the... So rather than just trying to kind of... You just get landed with this kind of very libertarian, I suppose, vision of mm. transport growing out of the sort of Uber movement through the e-scooters, through the e-bikes. Mm. Um, uh, rather than as you're saying, policymakers kind of being on the front foot thinking there is this technology... And how do we shape it for the public good 
and embed in it sufficient public control that we don't end up in a situation whereby there has to be a, a, a crude referendum and then an outright ban. I think as a cyclist, we're both cyclists, it is really fun being able to just be in control of your transport and just be able you know, to go anywhere, to have that autonomy, to have that individualism, you could say, right? And that's part of the appeal that's sold in car advertising. You know, So we, we kind of know that people in a city, in any kind of environment, people want to be able to travel anywhere they want, but to do it safely, right? And the thing is, what we have is a situation where there's just various different competing demands to do it safely. And so as a result, because we've, we've, we've privileged cars over so many other things, and we've gone through all kinds of intellectual hoops to justify uh, cars and the pollution that they cause. So that's all intellectually somehow watertight <laughs> in our society. And then along comes the e-scooter. And we're like, oh, we don't know if we can fit that in to this thing. Well, obviously we can. We just need to reappraise this system, this hierarchy, and these privileges so that everybody can travel if they wish autonomously enjoy the freedom and that kind of privilege but through whichever medium they they choose it's totally possible if we can give up enormous swathes of, yeah. of cities all over the world to cars yeah we can probably find enough space for the e-scooter for the cyclists for the vulnerable pedestrian to all get along peacefully but, but then that maybe is what is is interesting and exciting about hidalgo's move which is underneath it an attempt to curb maybe i mean yeah. you know yeah. uh, uh, this this kind of libertarian um invasion of the transport system yeah and if that if that is the actual political intent that's quite interesting and i am i am quite for that and i'm up for having that i'm up for having that discussion yeah. i don't know and i don't know what a kind of left libertarian argument might look like because i suppose there is there is something anarchic about it yeah. about the e-scooter and indeed about the the kind of the lime bike or the e-bike or whatever which is it's sort of self-organizing except it's also then you know requires quite a lot of intervention from a from a company and quite a lot of, so there's a there's a there's an interesting almost quite subtle argument that isn't being played out particularly honestly openly yeah. maybe in the in the kind of policy debate and wider discourse and that's that's what's for me really interesting about this story and pro and, and probably is the conversation that we should be trying to stimulate within yeah. within london do we want to be this sort of kind of libertarian anarchic self-organizing thing or do we believe in in you know i suppose what i would believe more in which is a sort of great ideal of public transport and public ownership of the of of our of our transport system and so that I think is the real nub of this story, um, and that's certainly what's at the nub of the the fifteen minute city culture war episode. So, staying on that topic of the fifteen minute city, we've seen uh, just in the last few days the influential Catholic Herald has joined in this kind of culture war. Um, there's an essay written by one of their pundits, and it's um, even going so far as to compare controls on cars and the freedom to move around to the Taliban's use of improvised explosive devices uh, to curtail the movement of soldiers in Afghanistan. Um, Neil, like, what's going on? Like, Why has this discourse around 15-minute cities become so extreme, so inflammatory that people are like bringing in the most like horrific comparisons like that? Yeah, the, the, the comparison is grotesque, but I think it is for the reasons that I've that I've just suggested, there's a suspicion that the left and and in that Catholic Herald piece, again, there's a kind of bizarrely crude 
um, anti-Marxist mm. refrain, which doesn't doesn't make a huge amount of sense in my in my view. Um, which is yeah, it's it's born of a suspicion that 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 there is a political game being played and it is about the curtailment of the freedom of the of the of the individual so this does get to some quite fundamental questions about what we think of the city and how we think that people subjects individuals collectives are kind of mobile um in 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 space um and able to to traverse its various spaces Richard Rogers' iconic Channel 4 headquarters has been handed Grade 2 listing after a long-fought battle from campaigners. This was reported by the AJ this week. Uh, the building, described by Historic England as a, quote, elegant work of the high-tech movement, has been repeatedly named among the 20th Century Society's top 10 heritage buildings most at risk from demolition, redevelopment or neglect. The campaign group feared Channel 4's decision to move its national headquarters to Leeds might pave the way for an overhaul of the 1994 building, which is lauded as, quote, undoubtedly one of Richard Rogers' most significant public commissions in the UK. Meanwhile, another iconic London complex, the Barbican, is celebrating its own built heritage by launching a new digital platform of the Barbican's archive. It will, for the first time, provide free access to explore the site's fascinating history, giving detailed accounts of how the brutalist icon was created. So, Neil, what do you make of the Channel 4 building? Uh, what is the value of listing buildings like this which aren't actually publicly accessible? Yeah, I think the value of listing buildings which aren't publicly accessible is an interesting question. I suppose it is about a conception of a shared heritage, um, and that's quite a powerful democratic ideal, I would argue. Um, I think also in the case of the Channel 4 building in particular, the ways in which it both kind of respects the uh, the street, but also then kind of creates a sort of publicly visible bridge between the the the, the four story blocks and the and the atrium is is an important gesture to the public realm, and I think that that does deserve protecting because obviously we see time and time again where those older ideals, I suppose, of a kind of of a kind of urbanism that um, that sort of celebrated um, the Commonwealth and made some gesture to the public realm doesn't necessarily happen these days. So I think that 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 is absolutely and unambiguously worthy uh, of protecting. Yeah, I love that building. It's it's in quite a unique spot because despite being you could say a London landmark. It's like down a kind of back street mm. near Victoria, not really commonly known where it is. But when you're there, it's kind of instantly recognisable. Quite unique, a 1994 building. There aren't many great 1994 buildings. And I guess there's something about it when I look at it. I look at it and I think that building's got a potential, right? Is in There's like something magic that could happen there. There's something in the building itself that offers to me a kind of redemption uh, that makes you feel like, don't get away, don't get rid of that now. There's still a chance that Channel 4 could make good programmes again. I would say that the 20th Century Society published a, a risk list of 10 um, buildings under, under threat, three of which uh, are, are, are in London, the Jaganari Centre in Whitechapel, Channel 4 headquarters uh, and the Museum of London Bastion House. And it is worth saying that within a month of publishing that ri risk list, um, Channel 4 building has been listed and the city is now saying that it's open to alternative proposals for the retrofit of the Museum of London. So I think that is evidence that, um, though I appreciate sometimes these strangely named um, societies seem like kind of quite esoteric clubs, but that they do play a really fundamental role. One thing that's happened just this week is that the Barbican Centre has announced a new digital archive 
which will allow people to delve in, discover all kinds of plans, photos, documentation about the creation of the Barbican. Uh, we talk a lot about housing on the show. Barbican's often lauded as a kind of dream place to live, almost like the kind of perfect council estate, although we know it was, it was really quite expensive housing. But um, yeah, what do you make about uh, this archive, this digitization? Is this something with, with a big kind of social impact? It's interesting. Um, on the website, Will Gompertz picks out five interesting pieces from the archive, one of which is a badge with the Barbican logo in the centre of a labyrinth, um, kind of trading on the the notoriously um, kind of... D- Inavigable spaces, I suppose, of the of, of the Barbican. And athletic as well. You have to like really go up those stairs. <laughs> yeah, it's. The, the, I suppose the irony of the of the presentation of that badge is that I I found the the Google Arts and Culture website utterly labyrinthine. It's very difficult to navigate. Um, so in terms of doing an amazing thing of making that archive publicly accessible, uh, great. Um, the the thing about the the labyrinthine nature of the Barbican is how much that seems to annoy people when actually isn't that part of the joy of our experience of the city that something that looks immediately um, you know kind of within touching distance actually takes you 10 minutes to get to yeah people um, seem to like venice don't they well and, and that's what <laughs> chamberlain powell and bond were inspired by partially and that's in the feasibility reports for the barbican in the late 50s so it's exactly that um ideal the general principle of making the archive more public and more accessible is a good one um so i'm i'm all in favor of that because actually making that work accessible not just to the wider public but also to the design community so that it can inform how they approach kind of iconic projects like this which you know we as the as the 20th century society do want to see kind of protected and treated well not fixed in aspic um is really important uh so i'm 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 all i'm all for that okay so we're on to the culture section coming up uh this weekend there is a new uh, film showing at Serpentine Gallery. It's opening on Friday. It's called Grenfell. It's by Oscar-winning film director Steve McQueen. Uh, it's a powerful 24-minute film showing the burnt-out ruin of Grenfell uh, from a circling helicopter. It was shot shortly before the tower was wrapped in plastic and involved extensive consultation uh, with the bereaved. Um, showings of the film will take place at the Serpentine Gallery from the 7th of April through to the 10th of May. T- the tickets are free, but you need to book online. Um, Neil, you, you're you're planning to go and see the film? Absolutely. I think that the kind of recent films that um, Steve McQueen has made about about the city and about race have been incredibly powerful. I thought that Small Axe was you know, probably one of the defining kind of TV moments for me of my of my life to date. Um, and it's interesting. I felt. Um, in particular with the second of the Small Axe films, Lover's Rock, um, that there was a real kind of pregnant sense in, in that film of not of, of, of a fire that didn't happen. I, I, I've always, have since I watched it, read that as a kind of, a kind of reverie or a kind of fantasy um, in which the New Cross fire hadn't happened. And then obviously he made the documentary about the New Cross fire that came out not long after that. And so again, I think there's a real potency in revisiting that place and that subject matter 
um, through this kind of what sounds like an incredibly powerful meditation on on the fire at at Grenfell. Um, obviously, as a as a an educator, I suppose someone involved in architectural education, running an architecture school, you know, I am very conscious of the uh, of the legacy of the fire at Grenfell and 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 redress for that great tragedy and failure in accountability and indeed in in basic competence. Um, and so we we've been thinking a lot about that over the last year and and are, are have launched a a short course around fire safety as part of uh, what we've called part 4 um which i hope will be of interest to people um also in the culture section uh resolve collective um has put on a large scale installation and public program for the barbicans at the barbican curve this exhibition is called Them's the Breaks. Uh, in it, the collective invite people to consider radical ideas for organising both within and without of institutions. Um, as part of the display, they're using technology usually found in structural engineering to visualise what's happening inside the Barbican's concrete structure, uh, using the cracks that naturally occur in the building as prompts for how we consider the structural decline of our systems, institutions and buildings. Um, the exhibition's open and runs until the 16th of July. I went down there last week and uh, saw fascinating uh, take on the Curve Gallery, Barbican Curve Gallery, a bit of a problematic space. I think I've seen a lot of exhibitions there and not all of them have always been like a greatly successful use of that gallery space but certainly Resolve Collective uh, they filled it with a whole load of really interesting structures and upcycled uh, display spaces showing um, a lot of books and manifestos and other useful tools that one can sort of go and dive into um, and get some alternative perspectives on how how our cities and built environments could be created in a lot more sustainable and inclusive way. Um, Neil, what's on your cultural radar at the moment? Any shows, exhibitions? Um, the AR is about to publish, has just published its um, 1500th issue. Yeah. I've written something about Empire Timber, which has been a preoccupation of mine for the last few years. And that on the 13th of April, they are teaming up with Mag Culture to launch that issue. And um, my good friend Jess Kelly is launching her amazing book on Jim Richards, the long-serving editor of the AR. Um, so I think that will definitely be one to check out. It's a subject she's been thinking about for a long time and is definitely the person to hear it from. So there you go. A big month at Architectural Review celebrating its 1500th issue with a big launch event. Okay, Neil, it's been a great pleasure to feature you on London this week. Thank you for having me. Uh, where shall our listeners go to stay up to speed on your writing and other activities? Are there socials or a website that's worth visiting? Yeah, I guess the LSA website's the-lsa.org. And uh, I am on Instagram, uh, N underscore Chasaw, and on Twitter, N Chasaw. So, yeah, I try to say what I'm doing roughly. Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City in association with the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and a ton of other benefits while supporting independent journalism, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring, Merlin Fulcher, Rachel Capel, Ella Jessel and me, Phineas Harper. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible 
and equitable. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.